this is your welcoming ceremony into the best worst club. It's the club that none of us want to be a part of, with the best kind of people. We are the one in ten, doing our very best at living with endometriosis. Think of this podcast as your space to be understood, uplifted, and plugged into the thriving endo community. This disease is a beast to live with. It's one that crosses into taboo territory, and the road to management is peppered with obstacles. Tune in weekly to be equipped with research-based information and tangible tools to navigate the medical system as a fierce self-advocate. To be moved by other warriors' raw and real stories while contributing to spreading awareness of our realities and to glean helpful life hacks and coping skills from perspectives of people who truly get it. I'm your host and fellow Indo warrior, Mariah Battaglia, better known as the Indo doula on IG. And while I hate that you're part of the club, I hope you'll stay. Make sure to follow the show so you don't miss any of the latest episodes and upcoming guests. The following episode may contain topics or experiences that could be triggering to some and are of mature nature. Talk of depression, medical trauma, disordered eating, and other sensitive issues may be talked about. Please listen at your own discretion and remember that this podcast is never meant to be taken as medical advice. Please consult your doctor or therapist about any medical or mental health questions you have. All right. Hi, Kimather. Welcome to Best Worst Club podcast. I'm so excited that you're here. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, thank you. Thank you for coming on. Um, I would love for you to start out with a little bit of an introduction. I know your Instagram handle is the rebellious uterus, correct? That's it. Yep. Awesome. So how about you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do on your account there? So my name is Kimather, and I actually just created that account um, about a year, maybe a little over a year ago, um, primarily um, as a opportunity for me to transition online as being not only a practitioner, um, but actually a patient. So I am a nurse practitioner, um, and I absolutely love what I do. And I've enjoyed being a nurse and taking care of others for several years now. But uh, around 2019, 2020, I really started having some health issues that um, really got pretty exacerbated. And I went from being the provider to being a patient. And so the rebellious uterus is my opportunity to um, to not only just raise awareness as it relates to endometriosis, fibroids, um, and including just um, health disparities and minority-related disparities in the plan of care for those two issues, but also an opportunity to connect with with um, other uh, endo advocates and as well as endo warriors. Um, and I have received nothing but love and support um, from that space, which I greatly appreciate, um, even with my medical background, I, I love that that I've been welcomed, you know, with open arms. Oh, that's incredible! That's so cool. I'm so excited about having you on the podcast. So, like, normally we have been in our series. It's not just a bad period where warriors come on and they like share their journeys with endo, um, and that's kind of been like the focus. But I am super excited. Because not only do you have that personal experience, but you're bringing this whole other perspective of being a nurse practitioner and a medical professional. And I'm, I, I'm just excited. <laughs> well, I, oh, sorry. Go ahead. It's so cool what you're doing on Instagram. And I really appreciate that you are like bridging a, a gap. Like, I think it's really cool to bring the side of practitioner and patient together. Absolutely. I really have always been committed to to just bridging that um, 
you know, that the two together, just um, both practice, but also like the actual community, um, especially when it comes to research. Um, but uh, but definitely as well as as a practitioner, I I, I just always ha- feel like I've observed this divide between providers and patients and when they really should be partnering with each other. And I, I'd like to definitely in my own practice, make sure that that is the kind of relationship that I foster with, with uh, my patients. Um, but I do wish that that was more commonplace. So I hope that I can at least help people, you know, kind of dispel some of the the uh, the things that we think we know about providers, and um, but also be able to kind of give them uh, inside look into. Um, how providers think, and as well as some of the demands, of course, as it relates to just being a provider within um, a, a very challenging, you know, United States healthcare system. But my my favorite part, though, is really giving people like the inside scoop, <laughs> like how you know how to get your provider to do you know to do what it is that you need them to do, and how to present your health issues to them, how to. Um, really get their attention and really, you know, what questions to ask to know if this is even the provider that um, is for you. So. Wow. That is absolutely incredible and so valuable, especially to the endo community. You know, I think that um, especially with like medical trauma and all the gaslighting that we go through with endometriosis, it is, it can be very easy Mm -hmm. to paint the practitioners as our enemies and I know a lot of us go into appointments like ready to do battle. Like we already have our guard up. We're like Mm -hmm. ready for the doctor to not be a partner with us. So I think like that is amazing and it's so needed. Absolutely. And I've never experienced it in a way that wasn't more needed than it, than it relates to endometriosis. I, I thought that I had a good understanding of, just the you know gender equity in healthcare, um, but I am now painfully aware <laughs> of it. And me being a, a healthcare provider sometimes is is helpful when I'm um, interacting with providers. But I definitely have experienced it not mattering at all because once you're the one on the on the exam table, you know with no underwear on and a gown, uh, half open, like <laughs> a lot of things go out the window. And I've experienced what it, what it feels like to, to one, be, you know, be gaslit, uh, to not be believed, um, to be like told that maybe this is just not, you know, not really as serious as you might think it is. Um, and that I've, I've experienced that, even, you know, for several years, actually. In fact, one of the reasons why I went into healthcare was because I had such, just such a lack of trust for healthcare professionals and for the medical industry as a whole, that I felt the only way for me to really get the best out of the healthcare system is to actually join them <laughs> and to learn all that I could uh, about it so that the best care can be provided because um, I, I deeply believe that care, you know, healthcare is a right and and everyone deserves to get get um, proper care and attention. And I think that they should be treated as if, the, you know, if a doc, if a doctor or, or you know, a nurse practitioner, whomever is treating someone, I, I want them to treat them as if this is someone who is uh, a family member or a good friend of theirs, or if it was themselves. And if we can get more providers to think that way, I think that um, a lot of us who are uh, dealing with endometriosis could make so much more progress, um, even if it's a matter of just a provider being honest and letting us know, you know, I don't know what to do. Um, But even that is lacking, unfortunately, like that honesty and transparency between patient and provider yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh. Can we clone you? We need like several more of you. <laughs> oh, I, <laughs> Okay. So I would love for you to tell us, cause you mentioned a little bit. So how mm-hmm. did you, like, where does the intersection of endometriosis and your 
going to medical school and deciding to make that your career? Where does that happen? Mm, Okay, so I've always wanted to work in healthcare. I just never really was sure exactly in what avenue. Um, I, um, I considered medical school, you know, um, becoming a physician assistant, uh, a nurse, um, a physical therapist. Like I just, I just really am absolutely smitten with the human body, like especially anatomy and physiology and pathophysiology. Even as a kid, like it's just really was very nerded out when it came to anatomy. <laughs> and um, but. Yeah, I actually, instead of going into a clinical um, space um, professionally, I actually first went into public health um, because I was equally passionate about um, addressing um, disparities uh, within um, not only you know the healthcare system but just at, in communities you know as a whole. So I worked ten years um, in public health research uh, while I was still in the back of my mind trying to decide. Eventually, chemotherapy. You know, you need to figure out how you're going to bridge this um, research background with clinical practice, so you can be like this amazing just combo of a of a provider. Um, and I eventually got the courage to, to do that. And it was the encouragement of not only um, some wonderful mentors, um, both who um, medical doctors as well as nurse practitioners, um, but also doing medical mission work that led me to decide to go the nursing route. Um, I just, my actual like way of approaching healthcare um, just aligned, aligned just so much better with the nursing model versus the medical model. And I, I just, it just made sense, you know, for, for me. Um, I, I wanted to be able to work hands-on with patients. Uh, I didn't want to be inundated with documentation and, you know, things like that. I just, I truly wanted to help people um, in a really really tangible way in helping them meet their healthcare goals. So, so I started out as an, as, as a nurse. Um, now all of that was going on while I was, um, dealing with some, um, pretty severe period pain and that I thought was uh, eventually I thought was normal. Um, you know, and navigating, um, academia and, working professionally um, with, with just really severe periods. And since my mom and my grandmother also had really bad periods, it pretty much was normalized um, in my family. And since my um, gyne- gynecologist also normalized it and just thought the answer was either birth control or um you know, prescription strength, uh, ibuprofen, naproxen, diclofenac, all the NSAIDs, <laughs> I came to, to believe that maybe this is normal. And it, it really took in, until I was almost in my 30s to realize once I talked to other women that, that this mess was not normal. <laughs> I was like, and, you know, it's, it's crazy that even with my healthcare background that I still, for some reason, um, thought that that those symptoms were were normal because and and not only painful periods but painful sets I thought was normal um not being not being able to wear tampons I thought that was normal and you know and so on so it's crazy how you internalize things when even if you have some you know the literature you know the the knowledge the you know clinical knowledge you when it's your life experience and it's what's believed within your culture um how um how much of an influence that has on on really what our beliefs are so um it it definitely took some time but when i realized that it was not normal (laughs) i definitely uh started to get more um firm and assertive with my healthcare providers and letting them know, you know what, I, do, I actually don't think this is normal. And um, I wonder if we should be exploring if there might be some other causes here uh, to my really severe period pain. And though I did discover that I had fibroids, they were fairly small and 
I didn't suspect that they were likely the only contributor. But that's all I was ever being told to say, oh, it must be the fibroids, you know, just get on birth control, you know, all the things that, that were told. Um, and it actually wasn't even nursing school or even my nurse practitioner program where I learned about endometriosis. I actually learned about endometriosis on my own um, in my research in trying to figure out, you know, what are some other um, possible causes to, you know, really severe, com almost confusing, you know, um, period symptoms and Eventually, I came across endometriosis, and when I brought it up to my provider, it was quickly brushed off, um, and you know they figured that was likely not the case. Um, and I pretty much started to lose even more faith in the healthcare industry because of that. So now, it wasn't until I actually attempted to do um, some fertility treatments because I was one of my symptoms was also um, infertility. It wasn't until I attempted to do uh, a couple rounds of IUI where I developed a chocolate cyst, um, pretty sizable endometrioma that prevented me from being able to actually go through with the IUI. And an IUI is is just um, like a um, it's a, basically a, a, a way for uh, a fertility um, clinician to bring sperm as close to the egg as possible. So not IVF, but it's, it's usually uh, a first um, intervention before someone goes to IVF. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. And thank okay. you for explaining that. <laughs> No, perfect. No problem. Um, so I attempted to do a couple IUIs with my husband, with my husband, and uh, like I said, I wasn't able to because the endometrioma had developed uh, so large from taking the um, ovary stimulating medications that they couldn't see any of my follicles. They couldn't tell when I ovulated. You kind of need to be able to track those things to successfully do an IUI, and that was kind of when I had the bell go off in my head. I was like, huh, did you say chocolate cysts? And yeah, you know, that's what the, the provider who was doing the IUI or doing the ultrasound at the time said. And she's like, yeah. And I was like, hmm, that sounds like something consistent with endometriosis. And she's like, very hesitant to agree with me. She actually made sure not to. Um, which I get it. She probably didn't want to throw out a diagnosis. Um, as a provider, I, I can understand that. But um, even then, uh, it wasn't taken very seriously. In fact, the answer to, you know, for, from the fertility, <laughs> from the endocrinologist was to just double up on the ovarian, um, you know, stimulating drugs. That was the, the treatment, basically. And that was not a good idea, Mariah. <laughs> Uh, like it was not a good idea. Um, now you you might not find it anywhere in the literature per se that hey if you have an endometrioma you probably shouldn't take over you know ovary stimulating drugs, but I can tell you um, from experience that that is not a good idea because of course that endometrioma did rupture, um, okay. and my what what was once just really severe period pain, some painful sets, and some odd bowel symptoms here and there turned into chronic pain every day, um, exacerbated bowel symptoms, crazy fatigue, uh, like just the full systemic um, symptoms that, that one expects when you start thinking about endometriosis as a whole body disease. You know, like, and unfortunately, you know, it, it really caused my health to decline and I had no way to really explain it because my knowledge of endo at the time was pretty limited. And, you know, I went to my doctors, they're like, well, we'll just keep doing ultrasounds every few months and check on these fibroids, you know, yeah, like, and give you some pain medicine. I ended up in the emergency room and the response was still well, we'll just do ultrasounds every few months. <laughs> I was like, and, um, you know, I, so I, I gave up on 
you know, the conventional healthcare system. And I actually started seeing an integrative um, practitioner instead, and several of them actually. I started going to acupuncture, a naturopathic doctor, integrative nurse practitioner, chiropractor. But, you know, um, none of them mentioned endometriosis either. And, you know, so um, I kind of, I know for some people going the integrative route has is helpful, has been helpful for them with managing endometriosis. But, um, you know, unfortunately, I, I, my, me saying I suspect I have endometriosis because of XYZ, it wasn't taken seriously from the conventional space as well as in the um, integrative functional medicine space either. Um, on the functional side, the answer was just, oh, you have estrogen dominance and, uh, you know, you probably could lose a few pounds. Um, you probably need to do a gut reset. You probably have heard all of these terms. And I did every single thing. Uh, I mean, basically out of desperation, I did absolutely everything that was recommended. I took every supplement, tried every diet, um, changed my exercise habits. I just, all the things. At, at one point, I think I was taking like 15 plus supplements and was on a plant-based raw diet. <laughs> like it, it was pretty insane. So, so obviously that led to some disordered eating. Uh, <laughs> along with other issues and and unfortunately despite all of that my my health my overall well-being was still declining and I understand now that that was because endometriosis was really just running amok I tell you I mean it was it was wrecking havoc um on my system and my system really just was at a point of overwhelmed. It was just a, a constant state of, of stress, you know. So um, it, it took maybe about two years of that. And it was a miserable two years um, before I started to actually develop nerve pains. You know, period, really bad period pain and some other wonky things to pain every day, like period pain every day to now having very clear neuropathic pain um, in my left groin and going down into my thigh. Um, that's when I finally was like, that's it. Something else has to be done. I'm done trying the natural route. I'm done with the conventional folks, or at least that's released the OBGYNs. I'm going to look for an endometriosis specialist. Because by then, I at least started learning more um, about endometriosis to realize that your run-of-the-mill gynecologist is not going to be the best person to go to. So, Wow. And at this time, were you still, you were a nurse, correct? Mm-hmm. I was working. Yeah, I was working full-time. I was working full-time as a, as a nurse. At the time, I was doing... Um, brain injury rehab, uh, which I absolutely love, uh, inpatient acute rehabilitation. But oh, um, <laughs> how? Like seriously, how? So I I was running on on nothing eventually. And sadly I actually had to cut back on hours and it broke my heart to do that. Um, but I just couldn't I couldn't function um, well at all. I could not even, I couldn't function fair even. I, I pushed through as much as possible through my 12 hour shifts and then was absolutely useless. And, you know, out, outside of work, I will go home and just tank um, and was obviously miserable. And eventually I hit a wall and had to tell my manager like, Hey, I need to go part-time. I don't know what's going on with my body but I'm trying all these things and nothing is helping and I'm only getting worse. I need to cut back on hours um, or I need to find a job that is less hours. So I, I did unfortunately end up having to go part-time in the midst of that, um, of, of that mess those, <laughs> in those couple of years. And I barely even managed to work that part-time job, but at least the part-time 
nursing position allowed me to work eight hour days instead of 12. Um, oh. I like, so that, that was really the, what, what I needed because I, I mean, I was afraid I was going to pass out one day at work um, on a 12 hour shift. Like, cause I, I could feel my legs just like going weak or, or the pain getting so overwhelming and the amount of medicine I was needing to take to just get the edge off was just catch just kept getting higher and higher. So, um, so I eventually went part-time. Um, I was in grad school, um, for the become a nurse practitioner during this time. And I, dr- I had to drop down to one class because, <laughs> uh, but I was very close to quitting altogether. <laughs> Um, especially, and especially if you ask any healthcare workers during COVID, like this was also all during COVID. And oh, so. <laughs> you are seriously superhuman. What the hell? I like, I look back and I'm like, how, how did you how? get through any of that? Like how, how did you, one, how did you not just land up in a hospital? Cause I, I was, I, I, I had chronic insomnia cause of, you know, pain insomnia. And that that catches up to you after a while. I, I don't recall not one good night of sleep for two years. Ugh. And, and I, I have a small glimpse of what new parents, I guess, go through because they pretty much don't get a good night of sleep for two years, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously. I was like, right, so, but um, it, it was it was hard. I, I was doing clinicals because, you know, you have to do clinical rotations um, during... Uh, a nurse practitioner program or, you know, any clinical, um, you know, uh, position. And, and I struggled through and somehow, somehow did it. And also did a cross country move during that time. But that, that had to be done because I, I was, I felt like I was declining quicker and quicker that I needed to get closer to my um, network of family and friends. And, and at the time, I was in California, my husband and I. And I was like, you know what? I don't, at this point, don't even know how, how much longer I can take care of myself. And I don't want to tax just my husband. So I'm, I think I need to head back to the East Coast where my, my family and my close friends are, are. And that was one of the best decisions I've ever made. I loved California. I hate that our time there. Um, was cut short because we had full intention on enjoying the sun and, and the beach for many years to come. Um, but, you know, my health definitely, definitely was a big um, motivator to, to come back uh, to the East Coast near family. And thank God I did, because once when I finally got here, you know, I tried to work, a, you know, a couple days a week, did that for maybe five four or five months and then even that was no longer doable so I had to stop work altogether and you know I had I had my surgery and thank goodness I was around you know my church family my my family family my friends and you know I was able to get a lot of support during that time wow wow that's an I just I keep saying like how amazing it is that you did all of that, but in all honesty, it's heartbreaking because you shouldn't have, it shouldn't have been that way. You shouldn't have had to do that. Shouldn't have gone on for so many years in such mm-hmm. pain. Like it's, it is amazing. And it's a testament to your determination and your strength, but it, it shouldn't have been like that. And I'm sorry that you had to go through that. And I don't want to like, <clears throat> like, praise that or glamorize that because it should like it 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 just really shouldn't be that way no I I definitely appreciate that and I totally agree and that's actually very similar language that I'll tell patients too who have been dealing with chronic illnesses for so long and yet somehow we're able to raise children and hold down a job and and stay in a you know a healthy marriage I'm just like wow that like I'm just so impressed that you've been able to do that. But I think it's really meaningful to acknowledge that I'm sorry that you had to, um, especially, you know, when it comes to women and especially when it comes to like women of color, like it's, we, 
just often are put in a position where we do feel like we have no choice. Um, um, but we do it somehow. And it's often to our health's, you know, detriment. Um, you know, I, I definitely, my health definitely suffered <laughs> as a result of, you know, pushing through and trying to finish school and still show up um, to work. Um, but but it definitely didn't. It definitely didn't help me, phys- you know, physically or mentally. <laughs> um, but I'm. Uh, that was a big lesson learned uh, for me, and and it's something that I definitely keep in mind now. Where now my body doesn't give me the um, the superpowers I once had, and it shuts me down real quick now. <laughs> and yeah. it lets lets me know, like, oh no, you need to just sit your behind down, actually. <laughs> You know what? That's way more of a superpower anyway. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm learning that too. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Wow. That's absolutely incredible. So what happened next? You, did you graduate mm-hmm. and then have surgery? Did you have excision surgery? Like what happened mm-hmm. next? So I was in the last few months of me wrapping up clinical rotation. So I started looking for an endo specialist in the DMV area, that's the DC, Maryland, Virginia area, but with the intention of not doing surgery until after I finished school. Um, But I tried my best to accelerate (laughs) finishing my clinical so that surgery could happen as soon as possible. So I stopped working um, in about August, 2021. I finished clinicals in school by, the end of September 2021, I sat down for my boards running on absolute fumes in October 2021, and then had my excision surgery as well as a myomectomy to remove my um, nine fibroids in November 2021. Wow. So I really tried my best to get it as soon as possible but I was I was really concerned about being so close to finishing school and it and I just didn't know what to expect after surgery there was so much uncertainty that I was you know hearing from from other um, people who who you know have had surgery you know uh, I didn't know what if I have complications and or what if um, I, I'm, I'm worse, I feel worse and not better. Like, so I didn't want, I wanted to at least know that no matter how surgery goes, I'm a nurse practitioner. <laughs> so when the time comes to work, I do not need to be on my feet for 12 hour shifts in the hospital. And I also, it gave me some peace of mind um, to kind of close that chapter before really entering the the endo roller coaster, because that's exactly what the heck it was. Um, and, you know, my excision was definitely just the beginning. Um, you know, I thought the suffer the suffering for years was was you know the beginning, and the surgery would be the end. Um, but no, absolutely not. Um, if anything, excision was was the beginning, and and it has been unfortunately a really tumultuous recovery uh, since then that I'm still recovering from. So, um, but I have a a better acceptance of the chronic nature of endometriosis now, and you know I'm I'm needing to reframe what my future um, will look like, both personally and professionally, um, and I'm. Uh, glad that I was able to kind of put a bow on a, on a few things before getting on this roller coaster. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You do. If there's, I don't think people maybe like, you know, until you deal with chronic illness, you're, you're probably not aware that there is like a certain mental timeline too of like, okay, mm-hmm. I can deal with this right now, but I can't deal with this right now. And once I get to here, then we'll start dealing with this. And so, Abs- yeah, Absolutely. And I also really liked, this is something that's come up on a few podcast episodes now about thinking that excision surgery is like a finish line when in reality, you finally get there and you're like, oh, this is a starting line. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And that, that's something that I let, I definitely let people know because I, you know, I, um, people find me on online and 
uh, especially if they know what area I'm, I'm in and you know, people ask like, you know, what basically what to expect. And, and that's one of the top things that I do let them know that this, this is the beginning, but not to scare you, but you know, this is a, a big deal and it's a big um, um, progress uh, step, um, but it is still just the, the, the beginning. Um, um, because unfortunately, you know, I, and I'm sure many people, uh, you know, also see that sometimes we're being, we're being shown the, I had a decision and my pain was gone and I feel great. And I got pregnant in six months and I'm back to work. And, you know, it's, cause it's really easy to share success stories. And I love to hear people's success stories for sure. Um, but I think uh, it's, it skews things um, a, a bit when it comes to reality for the majority of people um, who go through a decision. And, you know, there's a lot of, um, a lot of different things that can happen. <laughs> um, there's varying skill levels of surgeons as well. So that is a huge factor too in what your outcomes might be. And, and then it's also just so complex. Like for, for me, because I had chronic pelvic pain for decades, excision really just pissed it off. <laughs> like it, it was like, it's what pu pushed the hypertonic pelvic floor dysfunction over the cliff. Cause it was, it, 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 in my mind, it's like endo was like, oh no. Like, okay, okay, I think I'm just gonna like start a dumpster fire before you cut me out because <laughs> because I was able to hang out here for so long. I've made myself really comfortable. Your pelvic floor is a nice hot mess just the way I like it. And now you wanna remove me. It, it made sure that it, that it left its mark, unfortunately, that, you know, when it um, comes to just like some of the complications that can come with just chronic pelvic pain um, with or without endometriosis. That is so interesting. And I am so glad that you brought that up. But I'm also so glad that like this whole conversation right now about the expectations and the reality of excision, because same for me, like I, that's all I saw was the success stories. I didn't know that mm -hmm. like pain still existed after endometriosis. I was so naive and I was so desperate for some kind of relief. It was like this point of like, mm -hmm. you know, I convinced myself that going into the operating room, I was leaving endometriosis there and I was going to be able to wake up and be like, Hey, mm -hmm. you remember that time that like I had endometriosis and I, you know, like I don't anymore. Like, Oh mm -hmm. my God. And mm -hmm. that messed me up mentally so much. Like it made my oh, recovery yeah. so much harder. Absolutely. It did for me too. My, my recovery was just as hard on me mentally as it was physically because I, I was broken hearted to still be in so much pain. Yeah. And, and then I, I was actually in more pain because I had nerve involvement and um, bladder issues. Like, I mean, I, I, I felt cheated by the world. I, my whole identity was felt, you know, out of whack. I, I mean, I, it, you can really lose yourself um, without having, you know, some really good people around you to keep you grounded because it, it's it's such a mix of emotions. Um, and though already can provide yourself with a whole mix of emotions, but the pain is confusing after incision because um, it, it's not presenting like it was before. Like the way I describe how my pain is now to people post incision is that I say, you know, I am so thankful that I don't have all of that endometriosis, um, you know, living rent free throughout my body, but my pain now is more complicated. Um, it's not just a pop some ibuprofen prescription strength and you're done, or just use a little extra lubricant, you know, when you're being intimate, like it's definitely more nuanced now, more, more, more severe and um, re requires a lot more attention than what I was giving it um, because I wasn't really treating my 
pelvic pain overall, I really was just like looking at the finish line, like, all right, endo excision is at the finish line. I just need to grind out school and work so I can get to the finish line. But one of the things that I, I don't even know what made me think to do it, but something told me um, I should go to pelvic floor physical therapist. You know, I remember I wanted to establish a relationship with a pelvic floor physical therapist before I had endosurgery. So I knew who I was going to go to after surgery because my surgeon did recommend that I do um, pelvic floor PT after. And I was like, well, if I'm going to have, you know, somebody all up in my like vagina, I would like to meet them first. Let me yeah. meet them before surgery. I can <laughs> dinner first. <laughs> like, you know, maybe we can have some drinks and talk about my, you know, vagina and my vulva and my pelvic floor over dinner, you know. And I'm so glad I did. Um, but I so wish I had come to her sooner. Um, because she really had to break it to me that you, your pelvic floor has been in a state of dysfunction for so long that it's probably going to take a year plus to get it to a stable place after your surgery um even like because I just I just didn't realize I hadn't I just I like I said like I said I really normalized it for too long and um and it was definitely something that I could have been addressing years ago. Like when I first had painful intercourse, that would have probably been a good time to even be like, hmm, maybe I should go to a powerful physical therapist. But I didn't even know that they existed. And I worked in rehabilitation and I never heard of pelvic floor physical therapy. Really. So, you know, I'm thankful that I know of that specialty now because they are absolute angels of people <laughs> uh, and they they're so needed and unfortunately there's um there's just not enough of them and they're just not as accessible as they could be so that's another thing that i advocate for strongly is is greater access to pelvic floor physical therapy wow this is so like you are going to help so many people. You already are. And this episode is helping me so much. Like everything that you're saying is so validating to me, even where I am right now, because mm-hmm. oh God, I'm trying not to get emotional here, but like with excision surgeons, for me anyway, they're who I went to, there's not much of an aftercare. And so I really, Mm -hmm. I went home and thinking like, okay, hands washed, like I'm done. All I have to do now is, is let my body heal up from this and like Mm -hmm. realizing and accepting and allowing my brain to not downplay all the symptoms and the pain that I still have to this day Mm -hmm. being three Mm -hmm. years post excision. And like, you're saying all these things and I'm like, wow like yeah that's me I'm still in that okay I've I've been hearing about pelvic floor therapy from so many people like okay I need to do this it's just I I'm just I again it's like going back to what I said earlier to you like I'm so thankful and it's a it's such a testament to your strength that you've done this and you've learned all this and now you can share this with us but it's so heartbreaking and it's so sad that we don't get to know these things before all those years go away. Like you said yeah. about, about sex. I didn't know that it wasn't supposed to hurt. Like I literally mm-hmm. did not know that. I just thought you were sore after sex. I thought everyone mm-hmm. was. Like mm-hmm. me too. <laughs> yeah. Me wow. Too. Yeah, it, it it I that's why now I am I mean, I have no problem talking about the things that people tend to not want to talk about um, because that's a big part of the problem. Um, it is not too like uncommon for me to be going on a walk with like a friend from church and get on the topic of like like painful sets. Like, hey, is that ever an issue? And like, you know, uh, because it's been an issue for me and, you know, I'm happy to talk about it and I'd love to connect with other people who might be having this issue. Like I am so open about about these things um, because definitely from 
from my family not feeling like they could um, be open about their pain, uh, like my mother and my grandmother, um, the many people in my family who had fibroids, like it was, these were all things that were just like unspoken. And that was not to the benefit of any of the younger generation. And same thing with friends. I have a lot of girlfriends. How, how did I go so long with thinking that, um, you know, painful sets was normal or that like horrendous painful periods were normal. Um, so I, we really just need to normalize the conversations um, because the more we normalize the conversations with our family and friends, I think we can also start to get more comfortable with normalizing the conversation with our providers. But I'll be the first one to say that it's the provider's responsibility to gauge that um, because most people aren't there yet. So it, it is for me, it's my responsibility to ask, um, you know, is sets painful for you? Like, do you, you know, how many ibuprofens do you need to take um, when you're having cramps because that's that is those two things alone gives me the the red flag of of endometriosis being a potential differential diagnosis just those two things alone is fairly sensitive <laughs> um you know when it comes to perhaps someone needs to be uh, worked up for potential endometriosis uh, but how often are we being asked that? I've never had a provider ask me if sex was painful. I've never had a provider ask me if I had difficulty inserting tampons. Never had anyone ask if, um, like, if I've ever, ever even looked at my Volvo before. <laughs> like, there's just things that providers steer away from. I don't quite understand why, but um, I call them out on it. Yeah, you know, when they don't now without any hesitation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you are so right. I've never been asked any of those questions ever. I think once I got to my excision specialist, he asked me, you know, if sex was painful, but that's literally only because it was in the context of endometriosis. Absolutely. You know? It took it took getting to him to a natural specialist. And right. Yeah, like that the same thing. My my specialist was the first one to to ask me those questions. And even as a healthcare provider, I sat there kind of dumbfounded, like, wow, I'm answering yes to a lot of these questions he's asking. Huh. And it's my first time actually answering them out loud. And, you know, I was almost, you know, taken back, like, wow, I'm learning things about myself here at the, right, at the same time that you're trying to, to discover, you know, my likelihood of having, um, you know, certain forms of endometriosis. And it was really, you know, shocking um, to sit down with my en endo uh, surgeon and, and realize, oh, snap, these are actually aren't normal things. Yeah. You know, and I, it almost made me a bit emotional, um, you know, and I just tried my best to just like choke it up. <laughs> Like, um, but it it was it was really difficult to to realize that somehow I've made it this far with normalizing a lot of my symptoms, you know, and um, it was not, of course, by our own accord. It's not like we woke up one day and said, "Oh, this is all normal." It's it's again the the society that we're in and what we're told and how women's pain is not taken very seriously anyway. Um, we're going to cope in the ways that are available to us. And one way that's often available to us when we're not validated in our community is for us to minimize and to, you know, just say, okay, no big deal, you know, because we got to still move on with our lives. If our pain's not going to be taken seriously, then what else is there to do besides normalize it? Um, so, you know, I don't, um, you know, I, it makes sense why, why we do that. It's just something that really needs to stop. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's also one of those things, too, that, uh, you know, I know how many, I don't, I can't even count how many times you get asked that pain scale, what's your pain level today, you know, oh. and you're sitting there fully dressed, like your hair's done, you know, you brushed your teeth, whatever, like, like you are a normal functioning person. And yet, you know, like my answer is like, 
a nine or a 10. And they're like, no, that's impossible. If that, if it was Mm -hmm. that high, you wouldn't be able to talk. And so Mm -hmm. like that, that perception of like pain only presents one way. It, Mm -hmm. it definitely is a disservice to us because like you said, it's like, it comes down to survival mode and there's no other choice. Like when you are given, this is your normal, this is your everyday, nothing takes the pain away. You can't get out of it. You learn to live with it. Exactly. And chronic pain also, uh, first off, I always have to like do my, my typical complaint when it comes to that dang pain scale. Um, that pain, <laughs> that pain scale is absolutely not appropriate uh, when it comes to chronic pain, for one. Um, And its original purpose was not to be used in every single medical encounter for every single type of pain that one can present with. Um, You know, so it pains me that it's so overly used um, in our healthcare system. And that's how they determine how seriously to take your pain. And that's such a disservice. Um, one of the things that actually similar to like what you, what, what you experienced, it's one of the problems with it is that unfortunately, whether we uh, mean to or not, providers have bias and they've already determined and defined what they think a one and a two and a three and a four and a nine and a 10 looks like that alone, like, um, basically invalidates the scale because pain is only subjective and it's this it's the subjective um report of the patient 100 percent. so so for providers to ever impose their definition of a one or a nine or a ten or a five automatically invalidates it so to even put it in your in your documentation um is a disservice and to me is an act it's 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 inaccurate documentation like if if, if that's how they're going to you know approach it uh, what i prefer to use especially when it comes to chronic pain is is how it's impacting your daily life and your functional capacity and your mood and your ability to do the things that are important to you throughout the day um, and that just takes more time and i i i think that Providers just don't want to do the thing that takes more time, but will yield a more accurate reflection um, of pain. Like for a while, when I was went to started going to pain management after excision, and I you know I started having all these, um, I started having allodynia. Um, it's just like ugh, severe pain sensitivity. Just like um, like air couldn't brush even brush my leg or my groin because it was painful. So I would get nerve blocks done. Um, and because of that pain, I couldn't sit for very long because hinging at my hips or any type of flexion at my hip aggravated the nerve. It was the genital femoral nerve at that time. And any, any pressure on it just would make me shoot up. Like I would shoot right up. I would sit down and shoot right up because that nerve pain was just insane. And I got so sick and tired of them asking my pain scale number in, in, in pain management that I said, you know what, from now on, the way that I want you to measure my progress or my or the effectiveness of your treatments is how many minutes can I sit before I shoot up mm. and have to stand up. That's how I choose to define my pain with you, you know, with that provider. Um, and she agreed. She was like, okay, that's, you know, that's something it's, it's still quantitative. Um, it's something that can be checked, you know, over time. Um, so I would go in and see her and they'll get ready to ask me the pain scale number. And I'll say, disregard that. But this week I was able to sit for 17 minutes before, uh, before I had to to jump up because the nerve pain became too unbearable. Or if I come in another week and say, I was only able to sit for 60 seconds, you know, like, so that's, that's what it looks like to actually individualize care and to tailor to what's important to your patient. Um, 
I had to be kind of pushy to get that done, though, and I, that shouldn't be necessary. Um, but I encourage people to ask their providers uh, to do the same. Like, you get to conceptualize what pain is to you and how you wish to measure it. Um, you know, if they insist on having numbers, yeah, you, you can give them their number. You can give numbers, but how meaningful are those numbers at the end of the day? If if you already start the day at a five. <laughs> Yeah, like so eventually they don't even care about the number anymore. Because if you're always coming in at a nine, do they even look at that anymore? No, they they stop caring about it. So why not switch to a you know a natural measure that will be useful? Yeah, wow, that was super helpful. I love that. I was gonna ask, like, can you say like I don't want to answer the number thing because it's not. For one, I'm like, okay, which part of my body, like, and are you talking yeah. at this mm-hmm. very moment or just like a median or like this morning or, mm-hmm. yeah. And, be- and because the, you have a, you have every right to, to decline. I don't say refuse because refuse sounds like you're being non-compliant and in the medical field, they will try and use certain language. Um, but you can, you can politely decline to provide a number. Like, I'm sorry, I'm, I am not able to come up with a number because I'm having pain in different areas and each are at different rating. I'm happy to try to sit here with you and give you a rating for each location of pain, but I'm sure you don't have time for that. So perhaps I'll just decline and talk to the provider when he comes in. Wow. That was awesome. Like I've, I, at this point, I think I've done it enough (laughs) enough times. Like that, they just say, okay. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. Especially because, like, okay, like for me, for instance, I'm pretty introverted. I'm pretty passive. Like, it takes a lot for me to, uh, you know, like, I'm that type of person that, like, I order food at a restaurant and they get it wrong. And I'm like, oh, it's okay. It's fine. Don't oh. even. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so like going to the doctor's office, I'm like, uh huh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. okay whatever you say so like I Mm. somebody like me needs like what you just said you were literally like this is what you say this is how you say it and especially like because I think because I am I tend to be like passive and introverted I have to get Mm -hmm. like angry in order to stand up stand up for myself and then I've pissed the medical provider off and now I just look like I'm crazy Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is very unfair yeah, it is. Like you said, the, um, the, like being aware of the words that you use, like instead of refuse, decline, like that. Mm-hmm. And, and do you know that just because you're also a medical provider? Yeah, yeah. Because um, um, there is bias. We all have bias. Um, and it doesn't, it, there are, there, I definitely have noticed that with certain with certain language, um, it can, it's being received and interpreted in a way by a provider, um, whether they believe they are or not, it, it happens. So um, I try to be mindful of that. It's, you know, and not everyone, of course, has the, the space or the energy to have to be mindful of that in the moment. But I really try, try my best because one, we all, nobody wants to get you know, determined to be a difficult patient. Um, so I, I look at their notes. I, I don't know about in where you live, but in our state, um, they recently uh, passed a law that we not only receive our after visit summary, but we also receive the actual visit note. Now we, we're now legally required. And I look to make sure that they're not using um, loaded language um, in my notes, you know, and so far my providers have done a good job. They've made a couple errors here and there, um, but they've been amenable to addending notes. Um, and it's very empowering to actually be able to see what they're writing, um, what their findings were, what their, their conclusions, impressions, you know, are, um, if anything that I hope that makes them more mindful about ensuring that they're not using loaded language, but, Unfortunately, there are still providers who do it, who are quick to say non-compliant or, you know, what, you know, uh, like refuse to do X, Y, Z. That's not, 
that's not one's not fair um and two it can have future implications um you know for instance if your insurance is is set up in such a way that it won't cover xyz until you've done abc and doc if there's documentation saying that you refuse this or you were non-compliant with this that could end up having implications on whether insurance will cover something else so instead of um, allowing your provider to write down that you refuse something, be actually really specific. Like, um, I p poorly tolerated the medication that was prescribed or was unable to tolerate the side effects of the medication or the treatment prescribed or um, concerned about family history of breast cancer and don't want to do hormonal treatment. <laughs> like, I try to be really specific. <laughs> Instead of just being like, hell no, I ain't doing that. <laughs> Even though you have a right, you have a right to say that. You know, I, I try to be specific and literally feed them the language that I want them to document. Um, um, do you know, can you request, like, I, I'll have to look that up about my state, but is that something that you can request if your state isn't required to give you those notes? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, either through medical records, if it's a larger healthcare system, you can get all of your notes. Um, or um, if it's a smaller office, it really just providing that, doc that documentation. Sometimes they will charge you. Um, but that's another thing now, at least in my state, that we can't be charged for that either. Um, anyway, so because how prohibitive is that? It's, it's almost discriminatory to say you have to pay to see what a doctor wrote about you. Oh, you that, know. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> yeah, you know, but unfortunately, a lot of places, you know, still still charge, even if it's just charging to print out the documents, you know. Yeah. Um, but sometimes that, that's OK. I, you know, I've, I've paid for doc, you know, for medical records. Um, you know, in, in, in the past, simply because I'm like, I, I would rather have, have those records than, than just be in the dark of knowing what year, what, what's written. Because like I said, I, have, I just don't trust medical professionals very much. I, just, I really have some, some trust issues that I'm working on. So I, I need to know everything that they're doing and everything that they're writing about me. You know, so... <laughs> Yeah, you know one one thing that you can do also when it comes to pain, especially with some with being more introverted, um, is that providers, you know, especially when it comes to like endometriosis, they don't know how to how to, you know, conceptualize our, our pain, um, but they are going to you will hope be you know be um, comfortable with using. Um, evidence-based, you know, validated tools. And there are several pain assessment tools that have been validated that uh, one could find online that you could literally fill out and bring to each appointment and say it's pain management or, you know, gynecology. So that way you have something concrete to be able to give them each week that they can add to your medical record. Um, like, here you go, feel free to scan this into my note for today. Um, you know, just whether it's like using, um, you know, a, a quality of life scale where you can document how your quality of life was, in, you know, was impacted by your pain or, or even something as simple as like the, um, you know, the, Oh, what's it called? The faces pain rating scale. I honestly like sometimes want to use that, even though it's more it's more so for children. It's like I, I honestly sometimes feel like I can point to how I feel on the inside by you know pointing at to the to the face that's more representing how I feel because we're all real good at putting on a, a smiley face, putting on you know getting dressed looking presentable so we don't get deemed as you know being raggedy smiling while we talk because we're trying to be professional and polite but really on the inside I'm a four which is like I'm you know almost in tears I I that's a real easy validated rating scale that could be included in your note for each visit yeah wow that is super helpful Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for that. I, okay. So I have several more questions for you and mm -hmm. I, would, 
I would like to to continue this conversation. So I have a proposition because I like to keep podcast episodes around like an hour, just because I feel like that's usually what people like to listen to. Would Mm -hmm. you be willing to come back and do a part two? Absolutely. Okay. That is awesome because this has been amazing. And I feel like we've just kind of scratched the surface. (laughs) (laughs) I I totally agree. So and I so I would love to to at least be able to address your questions. <laughs> yes, definitely. And I would I because I also want to know like your perspective of where the medical community kind of needs to go and like where they could do a better job. And then I would also like to ask you some more like tangible questions of like what you're giving us right now, like these really good solid answers of what we can do, like actually in the doctor's office. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I I have a lot um, of strong <laughs> recommendations, even just down, to, even with just your first um, question around what's lacking uh, within the medical field and what medical providers um, can be can can do, and where where their um, growth areas <laughs> are um, and and the things that I personally am, am really trying to grow grow into and challenge my colleagues you know to do the same so could definitely talk about that <laughs> that is awesome I'm so excited that you're willing to do that because this has just been like oh my gosh like such a juicy good episode I <laughs> I'm so excited I'm so thankful that you're here now and that you're gonna come back because that's yeah we've definitely just scratch the surface with this one. Yeah. I want, I thank you so much for having me and I look forward to, to, to coming back and, and giving some, you know, at least spilling some more tea as it relates to how to, you know, what healthcare professionals, you know, are doing, what's, what are, how they're thinking and how you can kind of um, navigate that and, um, and hopefully even be able to challenge your, your healthcare provider to, to step up. Um, yeah, so, yeah, that's amazing. Thank you so, so, so much, Kimitha. I so appreciate it. And I'm really excited to have you back. Thank you. Thank you so much. I will definitely, I will get in contact with you as soon as we get off of here. And again, just thank you so much. This was such a valuable episode. I had a great time too. So thanks for inviting me. (laughs) Of course. Thank you. And I hope that you have a wonderful evening with lots of spoons. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Same to you. Thank you. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Best Worst Club podcast. If you could do us the biggest favor and help us reach more Indo Warriors, please leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you are listening. And take a selfie of you listening or a screenshot and share it on Instagram. I hope you'll join us next week, Endo Warrior. <laughs>